Merry Christmas Eve, church family. Man, those songs never get old. Never, ever, ever. All right, let's see. Okay. Good morning, church. It is so good to worship with you guys this morning on another Christmas Eve. Last year we got to celebrate uh, Christmas on Sunday. This year, Christmas Eve. So two years in a row of just being able to celebrate, I think, the way we should, right? Together, singing together. It's awesome. Uh, see a lot of it. If you're visiting with us today, uh, say Welcome. We're happy you're here. We're happy you've joined us to worship with us today, and uh, it is a great privilege always to preach the Word of God, whether it's on a day like today or any Sunday. It's a great privilege, and so we're, I'm excited to be here, but um, in our home, in our home, Christmas is a pretty special time. I don't know when Christmas begins for you guys, like when do you all start doing things inside the house, start listening to music, putting decorations up, but for us, Christmas begins on November 1st. I know a lot of you probably think that's really early, but for us, that's like chomping at the bit to get Christmas going. And technically, Christmas begins on October 31st at around 9 p.m. so that we can get full-fledged Christmasing by November 1st, right? Decorations up, music at full blast, and that's really one of my favorite parts of Christmas is, is the music, the songs we sang today. Uh, one thing I love most about Christmas is, and I experienced this yesterday, everywhere you go, doesn't matter if you go to Starbucks or Walmart or Target, through their speakers, songs like Joy to the World are playing through the speakers. Songs like Hark the Herald Angel Sings are declaring to all who are listening, whether they're believer or unbeliever alike, they're declaring to everyone who is listening words like, the Lord has come, and glory to the newborn king. And they're just shopping. They just get the gospel just sung to them. They don't even understand what's going on, but the gospel is just being sung to them. They're, being, they're hearing words like, God and sinners reconciled. I love it because the gospel goes forth in spite of a world's efforts to drown it out. Christmas time breaks through. I love the Christmas songs everywhere you go. And one of my favorite lyrics is from Hark the Herald Angel Sings. The lyrics go like this. It says, Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail, the incarnate deity. Please, as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, or Jesus, our God with us. I love this. I love this because it highlights an aspect of God or a character of God that is not often delighted in. It's an aspect or character of God that is not often worshipped 
namely his humility. His humility. Yes, our God is majestic in power and might. Our God is, he's often worshiped for his eternal nature and his all-knowing wisdom. And rightfully so. We should rightfully worship him as the God who is all-powerful, all-knowing. He's loving, gracious, merciful, all of these things. But have you really considered and pondered and meditated on the fact that your God is humble? He's humble. I mean, in spite of every possible reason to be the opposite, in spite of having every possible right to be the opposite of humble, our God reveals in his incarnation, in God putting on flesh, he reveals to us that he is a humble God. In a culture where humility is a sign of weakness, that's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to really get our arms and our hands around the idea that God is mighty and is awesome and majestic as he is, that he would also be humble because our culture says that humility is weakness, but God shows us that humility is really the bedrock of all Christian living. And so the title of our sermon today is The Humility of the Incarnation. And we're going to be taking a break from 2 Corinthians, and we're going to take a look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be looking just at verses 5 through 8. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair in front of you. And if there isn't, or you still want one, there's a handout in the back that also has all the scripture on the back. So you can follow along. As we go to God's word this morning, uh, first we should pray. It's always good to go to the Lord before we go to his word. And when we, when we do, would you join me as we pray in just asking the Lord to reveal his glory, the glory of his humility to you? The glory of his humility that he displayed in his first coming. Pray that as he reveals it to you, that it would have an effect on you to desire to be like him. Let's pray. Oh God, you are the God of all creation. You are the one who sits on the throne. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are high. And yet, Lord, you have entered into humanity and joined us. Oh, Lord, put on display the full glory, Lord, of the Christmas story in the humility displayed in your Son. Let it have an effect on this body, on your people as your spirit works to conform us into the image of Christ, let this aspect of Christ be pulled to the forefront, that we may see him and then be like him. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're starting in verse 5. We're going to read through verse 8. 
I'm reading from the NASB. If you have the ESV, it'll be pretty close. Starting verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is our text from the Lord your God this morning. This is the living word of God. I pray that it penetrates our hearts this morning. Our main point this morning in today's message is that Jesus went low at Christmas. Jesus went low at Christmas in order to raise us up to God. Jesus went low at Christmas in order to raise us up to God. And our, our passage today begins with a command. A command, an imperative, have. Paul starts with this word, have. Has some force to it, has some weight to it. Right? Paul is wanting the church in Philippi to think a certain way. Right? In the NASB, it says the, the word is attitude. So have this attitude. Typically, we don't like when our kids have attitude, but particular attitudes are good. Right? He says, have this attitude, which in our, it, is what it says in our English translation, but the word is actually phroneo. So I like the ESV's translation of this one better. It says to set one's mind Phroneo means to set one's mind or establish a particular way of thinking. And so the word here is used 11 times in the book of Philippians. This word phroneo, to set one's mind on. 11 times in this short book. It's used five of those 11 times in the first five verses of this chapter. Kind of a big deal to Paul that this church think a certain way. He really, really wants them to understand and think and feel collectively as a body a certain way, okay? So he wants them to have this mind or this attitude among themselves. And so in other words, Paul is saying, like, let the culture of your church be a certain way. Let the attitude or the mind or the culture of your church be one of unity, one of focus, one of all aiming at the same thing, Having the same goal. That's what it means to be having the same mind. All looking and aiming and going in the same direction. He wants each of you, each of us, to set our mind on attaining the same goal of the gospel going forward. Striving arm in arm for the faith of the gospel. That's, that's the message. And the problem is, though, is that this can't happen in a church culture of self-glory. This can't happen in a church culture where people seek praise for self, need attention for self, need their own way, are only interested in self-interest. And so this unity that Paul is telling them to strive for in the gospel, to strive for as a body, can only happen if the culture is one of humility. Or lowliness. Entitled to nothing. That's what that means. Entitled to nothing. Meaning 
We'd be like Paul in Romans 15 who said that I owe everyone everything. I'm obligated to go and preach the gospel to every person, Jew or Greek, barbarian or slave, doesn't matter. I'm obligated. I'm under obligation. I owe everyone the gospel. He, owed, he felt like no one owed him anything. And that's how the gospel affects the mind. That's how the gospel affects the heart. It's a mind and a heart that seeks the flourishing of the body. Seeks the flourishing of the body, the flourishing of the body of Christ, more specifically, the bride of Christ, and considers the flourishing of the body as more important than our own individual self-interest. And of course, our example of one who considered the bride of Christ and the glory of God as more valuable than holding on to his own self-interest was Christ himself. He is our example. He is our source of power to be this kind of church. So it starts in verse 6. Speaking of our Lord, he says, Who? Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So point one is humility looks like letting go. Humility looks like letting go. I'm going to spend maybe the next 15 minutes or more trying as hard as I possibly can in, in human words to describe to you just how ridiculous it is that God would take on flesh. And so it's going to seem like something's humming at you one after another. And I want you to know that's on purpose. But to understand the humility of Christ, we must first understand his pre-incarnate glory. Paul here affirms in verse 6 that before Jesus was conceived and before he was born, he existed. You and I can't say that. You and I cannot say that we existed before we were conceived. This is, you were made in the womb, but before Jesus entered the womb, he existed. He, was, he existed as an unmade being before his birth. But it says here that he existed in the form of God. And that English word kind of, it doesn't quite hit what Paul is saying. Because when we hear form, we think like, well, he's kind of like God or he's God-ish. And that's not what this word means at all. The word is morphe. And the idea is this word is used to denote one's mode of being. It is meant to describe the nature, the exact nature of what the word comes after it. So in this case, it was morphe theo. Morphe theo, which is God. So Jesus existed as having the exact nature of God. He existed and still exists as the eternal divine God of all creation. He is, he is morphe theo. He is the nature of God. He is the essence of God. He is the exact representation of God. So, although he existed as the exact nature and essence of God, that's how we should read that. 
But this is not the only place we find this in Scripture. I always found this, this pairing of Scripture pretty interesting. If you look at John chapter 12, verse 41, John, the Apostle John tells us in his gospel that the prophet Isaiah saw the glory of Christ as he spoke of him. Question is, is Isaiah existed over 700 years before Christ. So what glory of Christ did he see 700 years before Christ was ever born? Isaiah 6 tells us this vision that Isaiah saw. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, it says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. The longer a king's train, the more glorious that king was. And it says that in this vision, he saw the king's robe filling the entire temple and seraphim were above him, each having six wings. With two, they covered their face, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew, and it says, I love this, one would call to the other. Like, one's over there, he's going, hey, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the other one would shout back, I know. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They're just shouting it back and forth to each other. Just how magnificent and holy and majestic he is. And then it says in verse 4, it says, And the foundations of the threshold trembled. His voice. His voice trembled the foundations of the temple while it filled with smoke. And then, of course, Isaiah's response says, is to this is, Woe to me, for I am ruined. I'm ruined. It's his only response. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. This King whose voice shook the temple, this king who sat on the throne 700 years before Jesus was born, John reveals to us in chapter 12 that this king was no other than Jesus Christ himself. John 1 tells a similar story. Right In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, not one thing came into being that has come into being. So this word, who is Jesus Christ, is the one who created all things. All things. I mean, I could go on and on and on, right? Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 8, John 6, John 10, John 14, John 20, Romans 8, on and on and on it goes of the scriptures heralding the exaltation of the deity of Christ. If there's ever any doubt that he was God, just read your Bible. The entire New Testament is riddled with the proclamation of it. But Ephesians 2 tells us not only did he exist as the exact nature of God, but he is also equal with God in every sense of the word. Namely, in value. Namely, in value. 
But he says that he did not consider that as something to be grasped. Which means that Jesus didn't grip it with like a white knuckle grip his rights as God. He had every right to remain in heaven. That was his right to stay there. He had every right to keep all the privileges that come with deity. He had every right to remain in the glory he had before the world began. Such marvelous glory he had. He had every right to remain in heaven receiving all the worship that we just talked about in Isaiah 6. To govern all of creation from on high. To stay in all the riches of no pain, no suffering, no loneliness, no rejection, no sickness. He had every right. It was his right to hold on to it all and absolutely rescue nobody. And he would have been just to do so. That's what it means to say it was his right. It would have been righteous for him to stay put. It would have been good. It would have been fair for him to just stay and hold on to his rights. But it says that he would not grip these rights. Like, I've got to keep these. I've got to keep these. I've got to hold on to these. They don't deserve it. And they don't. But rather, verse 7 tells us that he emptied himself. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and he took on the likeness of men. Point two is this, is that humility, humility looks like identifying with others and regarding them as worthy of service. Humility looks like, identif like identifying with others and regarding them as worthy of service. This word emptied, it doesn't mean that he got rid of his deity. Or that he emptied himself of being God. That's not what that means. But instead, what it means is that he, for a season, he laid aside all of the privileges of deity we just talked about. All the privileges that came with deity. All the glory he had before the world was made was not gone, but rather it was concealed in the flesh. John 1, 14 would continue from John 1, 1 through 3, when it says, and the word became flesh. The word became flesh. And so the word did not trade deity for flesh. He didn't set his whole deity aside in order to take on flesh, but deity and flesh became one in Jesus Christ. Holy God, holy man. Absolutely God, absolutely man. And it says that he was made, and I like the word born that ESV uses, because it's Christmas. But he was born in the likeness of men, meaning that, yes, he was fully man, but it says likeness because unlike man, he had no sin nature. So though he was fully man, he did not take on man's sin nature. But the point is that the way our Lord would empty himself, 
The way that he would set his glory aside or lay aside his privileges is by becoming a bondservant and a man. A slave and a man. God the Son, the eternal God, would become flesh. And hear me, it never changed back. He is still fully God and fully man today. The God of Isaiah 6 is now flesh forever. And we cannot fathom the kind of sacrificial humility that is. But we're going to try. <laughs> we're going to try. I mean, think about this. How, how insane, how insane is it that the king of kings would take on flesh? Oh, how low was our redeemer brought? Oh, he did not come as an angel. That would be low. That would be low. He did not come as an earthly king. But that, even if he did, that would have been low. He did not come as a religious ruler with comforts and prestige. That would have been really low. It says he came as a bondservant. This is a willing servant. This means he put on the chains. He put himself into slavery. He would come and serve the Father. Every aspect of the Father's will, he would bow the knee to because he couldn't conceive anything otherwise. And he would come and serve people. I mean, all he did was serve. He would serve others relentlessly. He would heal. He would preach. He would bow low to the ground and wash his disciples' feet. He went so low. But he didn't, he could have even come as an adult. Like, think about this. Like, how miraculous would this be? He just comes, no mom, no dad, just comes as a man. He appears out of nowhere, just as an adult. And that would have been low. That would have been really low. But he came instead as a baby. An utterly helpless, weak, needy, Dependent, cold, hungry, incontinent baby. And then as he grew up, scriptures would tell us that he was unnoticeable in the way that he looked. He was just an ordinary man because he became absolutely human. Isaiah 53 would tell us that he had no form or outward glory that anyone would notice. And because if you saw him pre-incarnate, you would notice. But he came humble and lowly, and he would conceal that glory. He would lay it aside. He would be poor and lowly, even to human standards. The God of all creation who would receive worship from angels would grow up poor. And he would live a life free from worldly comforts. He would submit himself. Think about this. He would submit himself to sinful human parents. You ever parented your children wrongfully? 
I'm sure Mary and Joseph were not perfect, and I'm sure Jesus still said, yes, mom. Yes, dad. He would subject himself to sinful human authority. God would submit to man. Think about this. God would submit and subject himself to sinful man. The one who would curse the world the one who would curse all of humanity because of their sin and our sin would be the very God who would enter into it. All the pain, all the suffering, all the weakness that came with humanity, all the tiredness, all the hunger, all the disease, all the abusive power of the Romans, all of the hardships, all of the temptations, all of the injustices of this world, all of the frustrations that you and I deal with every day. He had every right to stay above it, but he entered into it. All of it and more. I wish I could describe just how low he was brought I wish that I could fathom just how low he was willing to go for you and for me. But all we can say is, oh, how much higher are his ways than ours? How much higher are his thoughts than our thoughts? How much more holy is his love? How much more holy is his grace? And how much more lovely is his love? And how much more humble is his humility than ours? This is why we can't fathom it. It's so unlike us. But it gets lower. He goes lower. Verse 8 continues. It says, Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our third point this morning is that humility looks like dying to self to take on the burdens of others. Humility looks like dying to self to take on the burdens of others. When the Son of God came, it was a rescue mission. It was a mission that Jesus willingly submitted himself to as he fully obeyed the Father in every aspect of his life. But this obedience it eventually led to his death. The God who is the author of life would die. The one who is life. The one who is life would have his own come to an end. The curse of death that belonged to you and me, he would take it upon himself and not just any death, not just any death, but the humiliating death on a cross. Oh, there is no Christmas celebration without the cross. There is no Christmas celebration. We have nothing to say today if there is no cross. We have no song to sing. There is no joy. There is no peace. There is just a ridiculous act of virgin birth without the cross. It's meaningless. But how low is our God willing to go? Not just come and subject himself to the being human. The cross was reserved for the lowest of criminals. It was reserved for the most grotesque of sinners. It was reserved for the murderers, the insurrectionists. And so because it was reserved for them, 
and the most rebellious of people, the person being crucified, they would be stripped down to almost nothing. They would be absolutely humiliated as they suffered what would be the most excruciating pain possible. And that, that was the point. They wanted you humiliated and in pain. That's what they wanted. But worst of all, worst of all, the Son of God who was with the Father for all eternity, the one who had perfect fellowship with him for all of eternity would in that moment have all of your sin, he would have all of my sin placed on him. The one who lived perfectly, who lived without any sin, would go to the most shameful cross, the most shameful death, and the most excruciating pain. But worst of all, he would have your sin placed on him. All your selfishness, all of our pride, all of our lust, all of our rebellious hearts, all of our lies, theft, murderous hearts, blasphemous mouths, all of it was placed on him. And in that moment, in that moment, in, in his most humiliating point of his life, in the midst of all his physical pain, the father would turn his back on him. The father would turn his back on his son. And in that moment, Christ would receive the full and just wrath of God. It would be poured out on him on that cross. A wrath he did not deserve. It was a judgment reserved for us. Yes, Christ would come and he would become a man because he had to represent us in order to love us. We needed a representative that could identify with us because it was man who had sinned, and therefore it was man who had to die. So in love, he became man. He became low. And he took our place. He descended from glory to becoming a curse for us. He who was rich became poor. He who with the power of his voice, he made the galaxies and he made every star. He made every living creature above the sea and under the sea. He made the trees, he made the birds and the flowers, all of these things that we enjoy. He made the mountains that soar above the atmosphere as well as the smallest microbe that no eye has even seen yet. He's in charge of it all. And he, he's the one who's in charge of the wind. He's in charge of the seas and the tsunamis and hurricanes. He's in charge of sunrises and sunsets. And he's rules and has always ruled over every king that has ever existed. He is the one on which every angel proclaims holy, holy, holy. And he is perfect in purity. Do you understand his worth? Do we understand his value? To know what he gave up. He went from holy, holy, holy to low, low, low. And he laid his life down for guilty sinners. So that anyone who would repent and place their trust in him, in his finished work for sin alone, 
that person, that man or woman would have eternal life. They would have salvation. They would have peace with God. Isn't that what the angels sang in Luke chapter 2? Isn't this what they were proclaiming and praising? When Jesus was born, they were saying, glory to God in the highest, and what? Peace on earth. This is peace between God and man. This is why he came, so that we who are enemies of God would be reconciled through his life and death. If you have not trusted in Christ alone, if you are still trusting in the idea that you are, you're a good person, you're just clinging to this, oh, I'm good, I am good. He accepts me, he loves me because of who I am and what I've done. The call today is to let go of that. Let go of that, let go of that and, let, and look at what Christ has let go of. Look at all that Christ has let go of. Think about this, I want you to think all the humility that God displayed, all that Christ went through in order to earn salvation for us, ask yourself this, would he do that if you were good enough? If you could get there on your own, if you could reconcile yourself to God, do you think he would have gone through all those steps of loneliness all the way to the cross if you could just do it on your own? No. No, the cross is meaningless if you're good. Saying that we are able to be good enough means that we take all the things that Jesus went through, all the humility he displayed, all the suffering he went through, and we say, meaningless. It's a vain thing. It's a silly thing. It's a stupid thing. Why would he do that? I can get there. I don't need it. But he wouldn't. He wouldn't do it if you were good enough. No, rather, rather you should look upon him. Just look upon his majesty and his humility and his love and who he is and how he gave everything up for you. Look upon the one who made you and just fall down. Just fall down at his feet. I know just know, just read this verse over and over again if you have to see it. But know that he's gentle and lowly. He will not turn you away if you come to him broken and contrite. He's humble. He's humble. He'll be meek with you. God, the Almighty, if you come to him humble and needy, he will be gentle with you. He will receive you. He will forgive you. And then he'll change you. But if you come to him in pride, if you come to him with all your own glory, then his glory will crush you. His glory will absolutely crush you and then cast you out of his presence. For he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so I urge you, if it is you today, I urge you, I plead with you to consider that 
I did this. I had to let go of my pride. Every person in this room that confesses Christ has had to let go of their pride. It was only the work of the Spirit. You're not alone. We all must bow the knee to Christ and say, forgive me. So I urge you to do that. Confess your sin. Place your trust in him and he will apply his blood and his life to you. His perfect life. His perfect life and his death in exchange for your sin. You can be made righteous before God. And it's a free gift that Christ has earned for you. Church, this is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we celebrate the coming King. Because the King took on flesh. He went through such humiliation for you. And we would miss the whole point of this text if we didn't ask, well, how can we be like him? How can we be like him? See, Jesus, I believe, had two motivations from this, that we get from this book in Philippians. I don't have time to sparse it out for you, but if you read all of chapter 1 before you get into chapter 2, you'll see these motivations. It is, number one, the love of his bride. From eternity past, he knew you and loved you and wanted to rescue you. He loved his bride. And number two, which is not subservient to number one, but two is the passion for his own glory, namely the glory of his grace, which exists through the bride. It was the joy set before him that he took his mission to take on flesh And to have this flesh forever, to go through all the pain and the suffering, and to go low, 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 is for these things. He said, worth it. How do we be like him? I was meditating on this passage on the plane ride home from Africa when I decided to change what I was going to preach today. I was just going to maybe continue in 2 Corinthians, and I was meditating on this passage on the plane ride home, and it began to impact me based off what I had been, been through in Africa. As I perceived the church in Africa, and as I perceived just how broken it was, and I perceived the, the bride of Christ was there in need, and then I perceived my own heart on the plane right home, excited to get home, wondering if I ever would want to go back. I meditated on this passage, and I began to feel extremely convicted that I was not humble enough to lower myself to desire to go back. And so from that moment on, I have been praying, God, give me humility. I need humility. I need humility because The bride of Christ needs humble people. As I try to meditate on just how humble my Lord is, it just drives me not to want to strive for humility, but to pray for it. Because I can't make myself humble. If I did, I'd be proud. (laughs) 
So I pray, and I pray that he would just reveal to me more and more of his character, that I could be like him. He would kill the flesh. That by the Spirit, he would kill my pride. I just couldn't read this verse without thinking of the humility of Christ, that he gave up his, all his divine comforts to come and serve us. And then I'm thinking about all, all the divine comforts, all the non-divine comforts I want to hold on to here. I want my heart to be like his. I want our hearts to be like his, to willingly and humbly serve his bride, to desire for the thriving of the bride particularly in places where they're divided, where they're malnourished, where they're so desperate need, where they're misled. They need the church. And this body needs humble people. Two. But who can be this humble? How do we even begin to see others as better than ourselves? How do we even begin to think that way? Because none of us in the room have it all worked out. None of us in the room have this kind of humility. In fact, I fear sometimes that in a very Bible-saturated church, like Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching, where there's at least 10 men that I can speak of right now that could come up and preach today and divide the word well in this small body. That's a good thing. But it's a dangerous thing because where knowledge is, pride puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. And a church who prides themselves in preaching the word is in a dangerous place of being proud. But if we are to consider, if we're to consider or we're to regard the bride of Christ and the mission of the bride as more valuable because the glory of God is the most important thing, we must have this mind. We must have the heart of our Savior who humbled himself for the sake of the bride and for the glory and praise of his grace. We must let go of whatever entitlements we think we have. We have them. Entitled to praise or to be praised entitled to comforts that we've worked hard for, entitled to be served. People, people don't serve me enough. People don't help me enough. Entitled to be heard. I have to be heard. My voice must be heard. Entitled to be known. Entitled to have a certain level of influence in the body. Entitled to be thanked. All of these things are good in the body to do these things for one another, but when we grip them with white-knuckle grips, it causes only division in the body. Only division. All of these and more will serve only to divide the body of Christ, but humility, humility, considering one another as more important or counting one another as more important than ourselves, that brings unity. That brings unity for the body to do what God died for the body to do, which is proclaim his glory and proclaim the gospel. But 
That's the hard part. That's the impossible part in the flesh because most people don't deserve that kind of service. But that's the point. It's not a matter of whether people deserve it, whether or not we are willing to go low and regard them as worthy of service. So how do we do it? We look. We look to our Savior. We preach the gospel to ourselves every day. The walk of the Christian life is not to hear the gospel once and that carries you for a few weeks. You got to preach it to yourself every day. You got to meditate on the humility of Christ in the gospel and preach it to yourself every single day, praying for him to shape your heart to be like his. Isn't that your desire? To be like him. Every Christmas should just be a reminder of Jesus' love for his elect, his love for his blood-bought people, his church, who are to be a megaphone of God's praise to the world. Does that mission drive you to seek unity in the body, which should result in saying, I've got got to be humble. Humility results in unity. Unity results in proclamation. Pride destroys it all. So may we be a people so in love with Christ and so taken back by the humility of, his, of the incarnation that we desire and that we, in that desire, we fall on our knees desperately praying that we would be like him with one another for the sake of the bride unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.